Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Women in Foreign Policy podcast. My name is Tara Zamet, and in this episode, my co-host, Ellie Smith, and I will be speaking to two fantastic guests about their experience with bias and overcoming bias in foreign policy. I'm talking to Jaya Patak, a Master's of Pharmacy student at the University of Brighton. Jaya is co-founder and co-executive director of Yet Again UK, an organisation working to raise awareness of modern atrocity. Jaya and I talked about her experience of bias, the value of lived experience in policymaking and the importance of connecting policy with grassroots activism. And I'm speaking with Farah Razmi, an editor at the Arab Media and Society Journal at the American University in Cairo. Farah graduated with a Master of Arts in European and Russian Affairs from the University of Toronto, and she has extensive research experience, having previously interned at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in West Africa, and working as a research assistant at the University of Toronto and in Hungary. Her research interests on European affairs, but also range from the impact of political violence on civilian populations to extremism and radicalism. In our discussion, Farah spoke about her research experience so far, how she transitioned into her current role, her experience dealing with bias in different settings, the importance of mentorship, and more. Ellie and I started off by asking our guests to tell us a little bit more about their interests and how they developed them over time to get to their current role. Let's start with Jaya's answer. I have a wide range of interests, as you can tell. I think I'm I'm super um, passionate about human rights, and that explains a lot of the organizations I'm involved in and my part-time work. Um, I'm also super passionate about science, so I love clinical science and I love working with patients and so that's why I decided to pursue pharmacy as a degree. In terms of all of the other roles that I do, you know, I've always been interested in atrocity prevention and human rights more broadly but also specifically looking at minority rights. I'm from a minority myself and from that experience and other lived experience I felt really passionate about wanting to work with organizations who champion minority rights And also, you know, we co-founded an organization which is looking at how we can prevent atrocity from occurring. And I think that stemmed a bit from my experience growing up personally, but also being exposed to the Holocaust Educational Trust, working with them, volunteering with them for a long time and various other sort of events in my life that meant that I wanted to pursue all of these things at once. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever find that they overlap your kind of interest in interest and love for science and pharmacy and your human rights work? Looking at the intersection between science and human rights that often covers things like global health, um, access to medications, access to vaccines, vaccines equity as well, which we have heard so much about. You know, I was always really interested in pursuing a humanitarian pharmacist role. And I think that's something that I definitely am keen on doing once I finish my degree. But I'm also heavily interested in international development. And that fits right in with a lot of work that we do in my degree. And I'm currently studying global health as part of my master's. And it's fascinating to look at the intersection between the two. And I think that, you know, I would love to work more on ensuring that we can highlight that intersection especially when we're talking about policy making because I think it's often overlooked but the pandemic has explained why it's so important to make sure we're hot on that topic and that we give it the time it deserves. So Farah what about you can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're currently exploring and what your research interests are? My overall research interests have been particularly within the realm of like political violence, counterterrorism, counter-extremism, My research focus has been on the far right and Islamist radicalism. 
And at the moment, I'm working as an editor at Arab Media Society, where we cover, it's an academic journal, we cover a variety of different fields within media studies. So whether it's media and conflict, media and peace, media and digital journalism, that kind of thing. I kind of get to study more of what I do within the realm of media, which is very interesting and hopefully continue my own research on the side as well. The intersection of issues like that is really, really intriguing. And I think it's also something that if you're in it, you kind of, you see it really clearly, but from the outside, it's not always as obvious. What is it that made you want to pursue this kind of career? We're, so I'm Indian. My, my dad was born in India, but he lived in Uganda and my mother was born in Kenya. And during Idi Amin's reign, African Asians experienced a lot of discrimination and prejudice. And so there was a huge influx of African Asians moving out of East Africa. And my parents were one of them and they came here to the UK. And from their experience through their migration and how we ended up in this country, I grew up with stories and I, I always even now learn so much about what they went through. My grandparents had a similar experience during the partition in India and Pakistan. You know, my grandmother was chased down a train from one part of Punjab, which was in Pakistan, to the part of Punjab that's in India, and she was chased with a machete. You know, there was so much violence and so much um, discrimination that everybody affected had to overcome. And I grew up with those stories and I think that from a young age made me more sensitive to the experiences of immigrants and the experiences of being a minority in this country. You know, hearing about how they were welcomed in many ways, but they experienced a lot of racism and they had to overcome so many barriers that allowed, you know, our generations to thrive and to grow here. And also just being aware of what it feels like to be a minority. In, in a country which is, you know, quite diverse. I grew up in London, which is, I'm really lucky about, because London is a melting pot of different cultures, but, you know, there is so much we still have to overcome on a day-to-day -day basis with racism, with discrimination. And so that personal connection made me more determined to enter a human rights field. I always just knew I wanted to help. And then, you know, I volunteered with the Holocaust Educational Trust, worked a lot with Holocaust survivors, and from working with different genocide survivors, I just became even more aware of how there are so many common themes because actually atrocity prevention teaches you that atrocity does not just happen overnight you know it's a build-up of identity-based violence and discrimination and I think that further strengthened my desire to want to do more why does atrocity keep happening why does it keep occurring governments say never again politicians say never again but they don't really mean it because if they meant it we would we wouldn't be in the position we're in today you know, I remember spending my year eight summer, I was 13, following the Arab Spring in 2011 on Reddit. I, I knew then that I wanted to work in an area which helped bridge the gap between grassroots activism and policymaking. Well, I grew up in Egypt, so that was the kind of the impetus for everything, because growing up in Egypt, where there is like anything that happens in the world automatically affects us directly and then when the revolution happened in 2011 it was kind of first-hand experience with political violence and what it does to citizens and everyday lives of people and how it can like turn overnight how extremism affected all of the events that have happened since then also growing up in the country where like there was a lot of islamist extremism just within everyday conversations you'll hear some things related to that 
that kind of instigated my interest in all of this. So when I did my undergrad and my master's, I kind of kept focusing in a bit more on on political violence, extremism, and how it all interacts and how it all relates to each other and how it affects people in general. And then I kind of went into the role I'm in right now because I'm in transition period where I finished my master's. I'm hoping to start my PhD soon. And I wanted to get the um, the back-end experience of academia, how like academic journalism and peer reviews work. Also get in touch with academia in the Middle East and North Africa. And that kind of like was a big immersion into that world because you get to be in contact with everyone around them, like professors from all over the world, and they're all discussing the Arab region. So it's really interesting and a different perspective to what I do. It's kind of a, it sounds like a, perhaps a bit of a cycle where your, your personal experience and the lived experience of those close to you informed your interests and then it just spiraled from there. It sounds like a really, really interesting journey. Um, and it brings us really nicely onto like the next question of how have you experienced bias in your academic or professional career or how has it featured as part of your career so far? Bias, first of all, as a woman studying security in general, like whether it's like war, like state warfare or non-state actors, there's always bias towards women who are in that field. Like I've had things said to me, like, why would someone with such a pretty smile like yours be in this field? This is a very common statement. Like you're too pretty to be in this or like, why would a woman do this? All, all kinds of equally entertaining statements to say the least. I've also seen colleagues of mine within the same field get shushed and panels be completely dismissed because they're women automatically. And that was a whole other mind-blowing experience altogether. So that's one part of it. The other part of it was, of course, my background, because I'm originally from Egypt, but I am also Canadian and like, for lack of a better word, white passing. But once someone finds out I'm from Egypt, there's like a noticeable shift and the attitude, why are you not veiled? What's your religion? And then it gets into this whole thing that has nothing to do with foreign policy or academia, where it just goes into the personal. And so there's a lot of bias within that. And of course, because of just coming from a different part of the world, whenever someone hears, for example, a counter argument to something that is, let's say I am pro letting refugees in of all kinds and be helping people, then it it gets automatically interpreted as I'm being militant towards my people where there's like no reason for that kind of interpretation. So definitely there's been bias based on my background and then also based on me being a woman. Obviously a lot of racist uh, statements over the years. And then on the other end of the spectrum, which is very interesting to, to experience now, it's coming from the West to uh, North Africa and having the experience that I've had. I've had different kind of bias where people think I have a Western mentality. I definitely don't have Egyptian nationalism or the opposite of too nationalistic. I think this is common in our generation where we've studied and like have experienced international experiences all over and like we have different perspectives. Then we're kind of between two places all the time or at least two places. And then you kind of try to fit in your point of view in a very polarized world. And that's where a lot of people's biases come out, basically. My experiences have varied. I'm really fortunate in that I grew up in Hounslow, really diverse part of London, West London. I went to a pretty diverse school. My university experience, you know, there are definitely 
less Indians, less minorities, but that, you know, I, I've been really fortunate in that my university environment was generally quite, quite good and safe. But there have been moments where I have experienced bias or discrimination. And I think often, you know, I'm not only the only person of color in a room, I'm not only the youngest in a room, but I'm also a woman. And I think all of those things in combination do come out sometimes. So often I'll be, you know, especially in the third sector, I'll be talking to certain people or I'll be involved in certain campaigns or I'll be meeting different organizations. And thankfully the experience isn't too common because, you know, I think the third sector is becoming more diverse, but there are times where I can feel somebody projecting either a preconceived notion about what it means to be a British Indian or to be a brown person or to be a woman or to be the youngest and and sometimes I have experienced some really unpleasant racism and discrimination in those situations these aspects of my identity can impact the way that people speak to me you know often they'll speak down to me or before they talk to me and they know what I'm about they'll often judge a situation I can tell from their body language. I can tell from the types of things that they're speaking about or the way in which they address me. I experience it in that light. And I think what it's done is it's emphasized to me how preconceived notions of, of what you think people should be like and act like and behave like impacts the way you then interact with them and your relationship with them. And, you know, there have been times where I've had like ideas shot down or I've been spoken to incredibly rudely or I haven't been... In inclusion in a conversation but thankfully those are on the rarer side I would say but they they definitely happen and within my um, science career you know I've I've been on placements in hospitals where certain patients have said something discriminatory or at times racist and I think that healthcare professionals from all over the world will attest to the fact that that happens especially in you know at NHS which I love so much but it does happen as well so I think on both ends you definitely see it and I think in the third sector, we are seeing more diversity, but that doesn't mean that it's quite there yet. And I definitely have days where it's really good and days where it feels a bit tough, but thankfully the balance isn't so bad. And could you both share a bit about whether these experiences have impacted you personally, professionally, how they've impacted potentially your interactions with others? I think the way it's impacted me the most is it makes me question it has made me question and sometimes does make me question my abilities because sometimes when I get to a position which I have worked really you know hard for or I've worked my way up to or I've gained experience for I question whether I've been awarded that opportunity because I tick the minority boxes if that makes sense you know quote unquote minority boxes because we know that people want to encourage a more diverse workplace, places to study. And so in a way, I, I'm a token, you know, person that fits into that box. And I think that has made me question my self-worth at times and had made me lose, lose confidence in myself or my abilities because I sometimes don't always feel like I deserve to be doing the work that I'm doing or that I deserve to be working with the people that I'm working with. Um, I definitely suffer from imposter syndrome and I think it, it gets really, really bad in situations like that where I have to convince myself, you know, I am deserving of everything that I've worked for and everything that I do. It's definitely moments and I'm really fortunate that I have a fantastic, you know, support system at home with my family, but also my friends, my partner, people that I work with, where we just remind ourselves that, you know, it's always a reflection of the other person and and it makes me want to work harder because 
I know that I feel like I have to prove myself, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like I have to prove why I'm worthy. I'm not just worthy because I'm a brown woman who, who can, you know, tick your box in your workplace, but I'm somebody who can offer something. I can offer skills. I can offer experience. I can offer insight. And it's often, you know, it's not a nice feeling, feeling like you have to prove yourself all the time. It's quite exhausting. So I've definitely had to work on that quite a lot. I'm really lucky that everybody that I work with now are the most understanding and the most brilliant people because we also get to have conversations about how I feel about these situations too. So I think it has impacted me and I'm still in the process and I think I will always be in that process of learning how to strike balance between feeling like I have to prove myself but also feeling like I have enough confidence in my own self-worth to know what I bring and to know that I have to fight 10 times harder for something because I'm from a minority background. I think that's definitely something that I'm quite aware of. It definitely had a few effects over the years where like, for example, I've had to actually change my research topics at some point because of safety issues, because of uh, barriers, just because as a woman, I would have way more ethics or safety issues conducting that research that I want to conduct than if I were a man, for example, that have more access to certain things, especially within the realm of Islamist radicalism and stuff like that. So it's been a limitation in some ways. Of course, there are a lot of pioneering women in that field, which is incredible. But then as someone who's starting, it's always kind of very difficult to like make people see the value of you also conducting that research that the risk is worth it and all these different things. And then on the other hand, there are certain realms where my interest in a specific topic might raise certain questions just based on my background. So let's say, for example, I was doing a minor in Jewish studies, but I was also the first person from North Africa who was not Jewish or Christian to get into the program. And, and religion comes into this obviously very prominently just because of the history of the cultures that I come from. And that was also a limitation. So I had to kind of navigate that world where it's not just the research that I'm doing that is valuable. It's also who I am as a person that keeps getting factored into everything that I do. So whereas this wouldn't happen necessarily to someone else, the research would be the first thing that people would look at. This has been a very interesting experience to have. Definitely, I learned a lot from it, but it also was always kind of like something in the back of my mind where like my identity as a woman, as an Egyptian, as a Canadian always has to be navigated through my research and my academia and my career. And then once I graduated and I moved to Egypt for a bit, it was very interesting trying to navigate being this young with a lot of experience and then trying to find the job where like most people are either were fresh grads, got a hired right away, or they came in way older, more established, and they got a higher position. So kind of trying to navigate that world just because of ageism at this point was very interesting. Like Someone seeing a CV of a 24-year-old who's had six or seven years of experience kind of just gets automatically intimidated and then does not hire them. So it's been a very, very interesting experience. But overall, just getting to hear people's opinions about what I've done or like what I haven't done this far is very interesting. So do you think that perhaps the effect it's had on you is larger because, as you said, there's different identities that you've suffered bias and discrimination because of? I think so. And I, I think it's something that I... I definitely feel like I didn't really understand fully until I've been like talking about it with people that I work with and I reflect on experiences and they're like, actually, Joe, this sounds a bit like 
you know, it's actually a bigger issue than you thought it, it was. And I think the reason that I didn't realize it was such a big issue is because when you grow up as an immigrant, like I, I'm the descendant of immigrants um, and as a minority, you often feel like you have to work really hard at something or like you have to keep persevering. So you don't always notice those times where it feels really difficult because you're just used to seeing that around you. You're used to seeing people work through difficult situations and overcome things. It has highlighted to me the importance of doing what I do. You know, I am a regional ambassador with the Holocaust Educational Trust and I absolutely love them, you know, so much. And I was the only brown person in my cohort of ambassadors. My friend, he was black. So it was just the two of us, people of, of color in the whole cohort. I, I never felt intimidated. I never felt like I didn't belong because everyone at HET is so, so amazing. But I do remember feeling like I have a great opportunity to show other brown girls, you know, young brown girls that they can do something similar. And two Indian girls that ended up joining HET came up to me and told me that they did it because they saw that I, I did it and that, you know, there is a place for them. And so I think moments like that reaffirmed to me that although I think this issue is definitely a lot bigger than we might think it is it has also highlighted to me the importance of paving the way for other generations you know people need to see someone that looks like like them in order to feel like they can belong somewhere unless you have an incredible imagination and you can overcome the physicality or the lack of physicality of someone looking like you so I think representation matters and I take it on like a challenge and it's something I'm really proud about, you know, breaking, breaking barriers. There are so many incredible women of color who have done the same thing, women who have done the same thing, young people who have done the same thing and who I look up to for inspiration. And that's what drives me when things get really difficult. You know, I know that this will inspire others to feel like they can do what they feel passionate about as well especially in a sector so dominated by men and it's now shifting, especially with certain parts of healthcare and, and then let alone dominated by people who aren't from minority backgrounds, you know, and I think it's a really good learning experience for sure. Like in my positions of leadership as well, I'm learning how to use that experience in a positive light. Well, I've had a lot of people help me over the years, like just so many people that were extremely supportive of me for my work, whether it's at the University of Toronto, like I've had quite a few mentors that I could like list all the time that are amazing, that really valued the work that we were doing together or that I was doing on my own that supported me into getting internships. And, and so like the first thing was always just having a solid network of mentors and friends. And that almost always overshadowed everything else. So like just by virtue of having a good network and like communicating with my professors and like keeping in contact with them and my colleagues I've always had access to really cool opportunities just because of that like I've definitely had gotten a lot of help over the years from people that made everything else kind of like seem worth less basically any bias that I face is like okay well it's nothing compared to the help that you can get from colleagues and then the other end of it was basically that because I'm so different and because I know that like I have different experiences. It has helped me kind of overcome those biases by actually learning to advocate for myself to be able to better represent what I do. So because I've been challenged uh, a lot and I've had to prove my work that my work is worth it and that what I do is worth it, I've been very used to advocating for myself. I've gotten better at advocating for my work. And that has helped me a lot into getting opportunities and getting to better positions. 
it has allowed me to kind of be able to prove myself over and over and over again because well when faced with the challenge I just gotta like <laughs> face it and do it basically <laughs> there's no way around it is there a way to change it I think it's just up to people individuals like I think if every single person try to like fight the biases kind of like stand up to others when they are faced with it be equally as good of a mentor later to whoever comes up for help as my professors have been um, I think that's the only way around it because a lot of the biases as we see they're kind of getting exacerbated bigotry is getting exacerbated a lot of these issues with racism have been like getting worse and worse and or at least not worse they're just becoming more obvious getting louder so it's up to the individuals to kind of try and fight that day in and day out are there other ways that you've counted bias in your life how have people around you supported you with that yeah it would just be really great to hear more about how you made those steps to counter bias and discrimination I've learned to build my own self-confidence so I feel confident enough to raise an issue when I think there's an issue or to confront people about a situation when I feel like I need to but also enough confidence in myself to feel assured and know that you know trust that I'm not the problem more often than not when people are racist you know I'm not the issue they are the issue or when I face discrimination because of the fact that I'm a young woman in a space dominated by older men um, in certain situations, certain meetings, that I have enough confidence in myself to trust that I have experience to bring, I have skills to bring, and I'm not going to let that stop me. So I definitely think it's working on my own self-confidence, self-worth. I think it's having a really important conversation with yourself and, you know, kind of asking yourself, how are you going to deal with this? How are you going to put things in place to help you with experiences like this? I'm really fortunate that I have amazing colleagues and amazing friends and amazing family that I can talk about these things with, you know, my family, my friends who understand this, but also my colleagues who more often than not don't understand, you know, what it feels like to be in my position, which is understandable. However, they provide a space for me to be really, really candid with them, be really honest with them, to share how I'm feeling, to share experiences so that they can learn from them as well and for them to support me better. So I definitely think my ability to start to open up and talk about these issues has definitely helped me work through them and it also has helped me feel like I'm making a difference by talking about it because I think everybody has an important experience no matter your background the color of your skin your age your gender you know you have a story to share and you have an experience to share and everyone should listen to it and so I think those things have helped me work through it because they've also shown me that it's not you know it's not gone to waste like my experience has helped other people or it's helped highlight to my friends who are allies of people from minority backgrounds, how they can better deal with situations? I think it has to come from within first. So because of all the information that we get like bombarded by day daily and all the different situations that we get put into and the overwhelming imposter syndrome that we keep experiencing and seeing with our friends and even our mentors kind of have to go through that every now and then we have to believe that we're we're good enough and that we can do what we want to do regardless of what people around us tell us and and that's going to be the main thing to help us move forward because if we keep just letting go or like listening to the noises of the imposter syndrome and like living that way then we're not going to be able to advocate for ourselves fully and we're not going to be able to complete to actually build those relationships with other people or build the network 
or even just do our work. I think a lot of people keep comparing themselves to a lot of others, whether it's on social media platforms like Instagram and Facebook, or whether it's on even LinkedIn, where like everyone's career is being showcased all the time. And we get overwhelmed by how intimidating other people's work could be. But at the end of the day, we also know that people kind of embellish what they do a lot of the time. So we just got to focus on ourselves and believe that we can do what we're doing. And it's not like we're gonna go and save the world overnight or at all, really. If we just do our work and focus on it, then that's gonna be good enough. We don't need to keep up with the cycle because no one can. I'm interested to know as a, as a white person and as a white middle-class woman, is there something that you would recommend or like a, a really important piece of advice you'd say that was vital in having those spaces for you to talk about your experiences and break down the bias that we're talking about? I think it's just about listening, listening and not speaking over people. And I, I don't think that's limited to, to white people listening to people who are from a background where they, they have colored skin or whatever it might be. I think it's broader than that. It's working with any any minority or any specific group. So, you know, when I work with Uyghur victims or Uyghur survivors or the Uyghur community, I know that we always try really hard to make sure that they are not being spoken over, that they're listened to. And I think, you know, I've heard it from politicians, I've heard it from lead academics, I've heard it from people who have positions of authority where they just speak over people who are sharing their experiences. And that's not good enough. I think we have to, we have to do better to amplify the voices of those from minority communities. You know, they have the voices, they just need to feel empowered to share them. On behalf of Ellie and myself, I'd like to thank our fantastic guests, Farah Razmi and Jaya Patak for sharing their insights and experience with us in this episode. For more exciting content about careers in foreign policy, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe to our podcast, and also to sign up to our newsletter and follow us on social media for all the latest updates. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and we hope you'll tune in again soon. Bye.